0: Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez. The podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your
1: host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my return guest is Justine Lackey. Justine, welcome back to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Henry. I'm so delighted to be back. How fun.
1: Absolutely. absolutely. We're going to chat today about, it's, it's been a while since Justine was on. She was on back on episode 305. And I'll talk more about that in a moment, but she since then has sold her business. And so Justine Lackey is back on the show to share her experiences from selling her very successful small business and how she's currently helping now people run and scale their own bookkeeping firm. So Justine ran a very successful bookkeeping firm herself that she sold, and she's going to tell us all about that. I think it's always great to learn from and understand what the experience is like to sell a successful business. If you want to get more information about the Howa Business, including the show notes page for this episode and how you can continue supporting my show, receive workshop discounts, join my monthly group coaching sessions, all through a Patreon membership, just visit thehowabusiness.com. I also encourage you to please subscribe to my show wherever you might be listening so you don't miss any new episodes. So Justine Lackey founded one of the very first virtual bookkeeping companies in all of America. It was uh, called Good, or still is, Good Sense Management, Good Sense Management. Over 15 years, she grew her firm from a one-woman show to a multi-six-figure, multi-state firm, which she sold earlier this year in 2023. The freedom of owning her own company allowed Justine to raise her three children while never missing a school play or scrambling to find childcare on a snow day. I can relate to that. That's always said one of those huge benefits that they were fortunate to have as business owners. One of their proudest accomplishments, though, was creating an all-mom team and giving, giving her employees the freedom to build their job around their lives and not their lives around their jobs. Today, as I mentioned, Justine teaches bookkeepers, especially moms, who run wildly efficient, highly profitable bookkeeping businesses while staying sane and having fun. So as I mentioned, Justine was previously a guest on episode 305. That episode was titled Bookkeeping for Small Businesses with Justine Lackey. We uh, explored her entrepreneur journey, how she had gotten to that point. So if you're interested in that and also about how she operated her bookkeeping business, that's a great episode to go back to. Justine lives in the Hudson Valley area up in New York. So once again, Justine Lackey, welcome back to the show.
0: Thank you, I'm delighted to be here.
1: Absolutely, so um, let's get right into it in selling your business. The the first question I had uh, that, that I thought I would start with is why did you decide to sell? Because that is often such a big decision especially when you have a successful business, right? So what led you to decide to sell your business?
0: Um, I like to refer to it as my Lion King moment, where it was just like, it is time.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, (laughs) uh, No, I had been doing bookkeeping, you know, for almost 25 years. I started as a teenager. I had good sense for 15 years. Um, I am approaching uh, my 50th birthday and, um, you know, just changes in the landscape, making my way through covid as a any person in the accounting or bookkeeping world knows it was a very, very challenging time for all of us because we had to manage all the PPP loans and the eda loans and then the forgiveness. So I was just tired, and i I was ready,
1: yeah. Uh, it's always a challenge to do you, you know now I think there's much more of a focus for business owners on what's your exit plan and thinking about the exit. But I know what you know when I was starting businesses 10, 15, 20 years ago, that I don't know that that was a topic, really. Did you go into your business thinking of an exit, or did that come later?
0: No. So I refer to myself as an accidental entrepreneur. I just happened to land a bookkeeping gig, and then I started freelance bookkeeping. And then all of a sudden i had I had a runaway bus, as it were. yeah, yeah. and um, and I can remember the exact time that I realized it was an asset. Actually, I was working with a graphic designer, and I was saying, you know, sometimes I think about exiting, but what could I do? At that, that time I was a single mom of two, two. And she's like, well, you know, you could sell the business. And I was like, what? Hmm. <laughs> I know the irony of that is because I was a financial professional, but it, that shows you how much it wasn't on my radar. She's like, right. well, you know, people sell their client lists, They sell their businesses. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And hmm. so, um, and that was probably like, I want to say 2011 or 12. Um, Yeah. So no, I didn't come into it with an exit strategy uh, at all.
1: Now at that point, when you were thinking about that around 2012, would you, if you think back to then, was your business sellable at that point?
0: Um, I don't, I don't think it was. Um, And in fact, we'll we'll talk about brokers at uh, at some point, I'm sure Mm -hmm. Um, there's a threshold to be able to sell your business. Right. Um, and I certainly wasn't financially prepared enough to do it at that time. And that year is a ballpark, but it was it was pretty early on. And I would want to say in the first three or four years of having the court. Mm-hmm.
1: So then did you start to do certain things to prepare your business to be sellable?
0: So that sparked curiosity in me. And I was in a women's networking group in New York City at the time. And there was a woman who owned a t-shirt business and she had approached me. This is before this conversation about selling the business. she had approached me because she was in the process of selling her t-shirt company and she needed some um, valuation services. And so after I had this conversation that sparked the idea that this was actually an asset, I went to this woman and I said, hey, what did you do to prepare your company for sale? And she recommended that I read the book, Built to Sell. And mm-hmm. I think it's by Richard Warylau, right, or John Warylau.
1: John, I believe it is. Yes. Yeah.
0: So, that. um, so she recommended that I read this book, "Built to Sell" by John Warylau, and and I did that. And it's it's a great book because it's actually a fictional business story, and it tells this entrepreneur's journey of how he prepared his business to sell. And um, I always had that in the back of my mind. And, um, and so that was kind of the first thing that I did was just like, hey, what does it actually look like? Um, I didn't actually start um, preparing the business to sell with intention, because like I said, it was more this moment where I had this feeling that it was time for me to do it. But at that point, we were keeping the metrics and things that we needed in order to have a successful sale.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, with your type of business, of course, your finances, I'm sure, were clean and in order. That's often one of the big challenges that small business owners have. I've observed where their their books are a mess, and therefore, it's going to be very hard for somebody when they do due diligence to validate the valuation. I suspect that wasn't an issue for you. But with your type of business, where what you have is this book of business, this this list of clients, that's often hard to value and to uh, kind of assure that that will transfer to some degree to the new owner, right?
0: So um, this is why I decided to hire a broker. Um, I did not know enough about the business valuation process. And it's actually a science, right? Um, And so I had this amazing broker team to help me guide, you know, to help guide me through that, right? Because you know, my father says, and I'm sure it's classic wisdom, but you can't price a house when you go to sell it for a penny more than somebody will pay. And you don't want to charge a penny less than you can earn. So I had a great team to help me walk me through that um, that valuation process.
1: And so uh, you went that route, because a lot of times small business owners don't go to a broker. Uh, I have, by the way, I've done it multiple ways, sold it myself, sold it through a broker but often it's that fee that because the seller pays the fee typically that keeps people from going for you it sounds like you just, you needed that wealth of knowledge to to not only value but then to navigate the process yeah
0: yeah i mean it's definitely expensive um to pay you know 10% of um and that's typically what business brokers charge yep it's definitely expensive but again Without that guidance, I would have had no idea how to evaluate the business. Um, you get access, um, The I don't know how it works for other industries, but um, in the accounting and bookkeeping industry, there's actually something similar to MLS where um, business accounting firms are listed mm-hmm. and they have all their their demographics <laughs> for, for lack of a better word, yeah. where the business is located, what their client base looks like, what the asking price is. Um, how long they've been in business, all of these things. So a broker actually gives you access to this mass database where firms, at least the broker that I worked with, it was firms in both United States and Canada. So this gave me access to, you really want the largest buyer pool that you can get, right? So if I had decided to sell my business, sure, I could have posted a a post on LinkedIn, which probably wouldn't get seen because I'm not on LinkedIn a ton, but I would have had I would have had a very small pool of buyers, and yeah. so um, that that's the other advantage I would say of working with a broker.
1: Yeah, and it also gave you that reality check. I'm sure on okay, this is what similar firms are selling for. Was there was there a reality check that you get? You know, As often that's what happens. It's like whether uh, you mentioned our residents, right? We we think that our business is worth a lot more sometimes. I know I've been guilty of that than it is. Was that a reality check or were you in line with what you thought you could get for the business?
0: I think I was in line. Yeah. And I had been looking, right. I kind of knew what things were going for. So yeah. Yeah. And part of that came from, from John's book. So
1: there
0: wasn't, there wasn't, I mean, there's definitely, I've I've heard it in real estate a thousand times, right? Like people think their house is worth I don't know, $30 million. Right, And then the real estate broker comes along and they're like, no, 300,000. I'm sorry. Um, But no, it was was pretty much in line.
1: Did you take a seller's note or was it all cash to you?
0: So I can't discuss the details of the exact transaction. That would probably fall outside of the, the contractual negotiations, but there are many ways to do it. Some people go for an all cash deal. Some people do part owner financing and part cash. So um, for people who are not familiar with that term, owner financing basically means that the the purchase, the purchase purchaser gives you an IOU, right? So let's say your firm sold for $100,000 or your business, they would give you $50,000 cash up front, and then $50,000 is essentially a loan that you're going to give them, and you come up with the terms for that. And then sometimes with accounting firms, although this isn't as common as it used to be, um, there's essentially a revenue share. So if your firm is making $100,000 a year, you'll get you know X number of piece of the pie for anywhere between one and five years. So it's a lot of different, there's a, different, a lot of different constructs. And that's where a broker, again, can give you insights, right? Like what was happening in the industry five years ago is not necessarily what's relevant today. And so that's where else I felt I leaned into them a lot to to pick apart that process and come up with a structure that worked for both me and the purchaser.
1: How did you find your broker?
0: There's there's not a ton, of, so it's a specialized industry, right? There's not like thirty accounting firm brokers out there. There's a few, and one of them I booked a call with, and the guy called me at the wrong time, and then. He said to me, yeah, I'm at a business conference. So I had a few minutes and, and I thought I'd give you a quick call and um, I'll send you the paperwork and uh, we can get to, to list the firm and then we can get started. <laughs> and I was like, I'm, I'm a customer service aficionado. Like I love, I don't know if that's the exact word. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm, I'm really into customer service and I'm really into people and relationships. And I was like, I left that phone call feeling Terrible. I yeah, was like just icky. That's
1: not that's this, not who you were looking for. Yeah, yet.
0: this person does not care about me at all. And this is not just about me, this is about my team, right? So one of my corporate values, um, for good sense, and it's carried over through my life as being people-centric, right? Not just caring about the customers, but caring about my team. And I'm like, this person doesn't get it. And then I got and then I called another one, and that that was the broker that I decided to use, which is the Poe Group. And um I connected, they they connect you based on a region and my regional person just happened to be out. So I ended up working with somebody in Canada. But the very first phone call called me on time and spent an hour, I think it was an hour we talked, maybe longer. And I'm a question asker, right? Like I'm a long decision maker. And what they, what he really drove home during the whole conversation was we focus on fit. We want you to find the right fit. And it's not just a fit for you. It's a fit for your clients and for your team and was so patient and so kind. uh, You know, I, at that, that, that point, it was a done deal for me. So
1: that's fantastic. You've mentioned your team now. So um, it's always tricky. When when do we tell them, do we tell them, Uh, do do we announce it? Do we keep this secret? How did you handle that? and, And then sharing that information.
0: That was really hard for me. One of the things that I think I excelled at, considering the nature of the accounting inter- industry, is retaining team members. It's always hard to find team members, but you know, some of my team members had been with me for eight years, six years. One of them I had known since my 20s. She had worked for me for five years or so. Uh, but of course you have to keep you, when you go into at least the structure with the Poe group and i'm sure it's similar with other brokers you have to sign conf- it's reciprocal confidentiality agreements right so i'm signing a confidentiality agreement saying that i'm not going to share anything about the deal for the buyer and the buyer is doing the same cuz you you know you don't want um your clients or your team to find out about the sale because then um that can that can threaten the progress right for sure. so Um, I did have to keep it a secret. It was not an easy secret to keep. And the day that I told them, I completely bawled my eyes out. I'm a crier by nature, but I was like hyperventilating crying.
1: And that was once you had already agreed to an LOI or executed a deal or closed a contract. When when did you tell them?
0: Yeah, no, that was when the deal was fully executed. Like fully six executed. wow, and, so that was a uh, long
1: time. So even through due diligence, you kept it secret.
0: Yep, yeah, through due diligence, through contractual negotiations, through the value exchange, and uh, yeah, it was really hard. And and the the consolation that I had though was that I really did focus on fit, and and I was like, listen, you know, I I adore you guys. I love you guys. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's time you guys. knew They knew I was tired, right? It was no, it was no secret. Um, and I said, but I worked so hard to find somebody that I think I know is going to take great care of you. And yeah. um, that, that made me have a clear conscience about it.
1: And, and it's all we can do this. This is the, the reason I, I dwell on this point, because I think it is one of the more difficult parts of the process when we go through it, because we, we have, we're, we're at times racked with guilt uh, do I owe them having told them and, and the truth is that well uh, while it's hard truth is that I don't owe th- my team that what I owe them is what I've been giving them this this is my opinion I'd like to get mm-hmm. your thoughts what I owe them is what I've been giving them fair compensation a great place to work treating them fairly treating them well treating them like I would treat myself I owe them those things but then it's my business I'm I'm the entrepreneur and this is something that I have to keep separate in most situations. That's the way I've looked at it. What, what are your thoughts there?
0: Yeah. So um, I think, and I, I see this in my industry. I see this with my, my students and the people that I mentor is, and, and as, a, as a woman business owner, right? Like I, I really value community. I really value relationships. And sometimes um, what we have to remember at the end of the day is that we are running a business. And we are here to make money and we have to make sure that we can wear um, the CEO hat and the CFO hat and do that well, like in a, in a way that serves everybody. And I really believe in ethical leadership. Um, it is is so important to me. And I think, frankly, I think we lack a lot of it out there in the world, but you, you, at the end of the day, you don't owe anybody anything, but what you do, what was important to me is and my father, this is a lesson from my dad, who was a union leader. You have to be able to get up in the middle of the night and look at yourself in the mirror and have That's a right. clear, a clear conscience.
1: That's right. That's and,
0: right. And, and, you know, just to share a little bit more about my process, you know, I approached it with intense scrutiny and expectations. I was like, okay, like, you know, I am, I'm going to find the one. And I did this through the lens of the good sense values. Right. And these especially two of them, which was one being people-centric and excellence and evolution, right? So I really, I wanted this to be an excellent process and I wanted to, this to be an evolution for good sense, you know, that we were actually going to continue on and be better and that my team were going to, ha- were, they were actually going to have better jobs than they had uh, when I was running the company. And so to that end, I, I looked for firms that were similar to mine And I looked for people who had experience with mergers and acquisitions, because over time, I have been involved in CPA firms that have been bought or sold, and it was not a good experience. Um, And then again, focusing on that cultural fit and skill set. So yes, you have to approach it as a a leader and as an executive, but also approach it from from the lens of ethical leadership. Yeah, Um,
1: I agree. Uh, Now, to provide a different perspective there, uh, it it really depends on the situation. I have sold a business where we did tell our leaders, uh, just made sense for all kinds of various reasons. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we did there, that is an idea for those of you listening that might feel like, okay, I have no choice but to share with the key leaders is we did a retention bonus so that those key players felt like, okay, not only am I, am I, am I confident, but I can't guarantee that you will continue to have employment. I can't guarantee that, right? That's up to the new owner. I'm going to look for a good fit, but I'm going to compensate you to stay with me through this journey. And so that's another approach that I've taken. And I've seen other business owners take when it makes sense.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's all different ways that you can structure that. Um, And I've seen similar things happen also.
1: From the day that you listed it with the broker uh to contract, finalize, sold. How how long was that period of time, more or less?
0: So, like I said, I'm a long decision maker. <laughs> I probably're you very
1: analytical, but that's that's partly why you were probably a good bookkeeper, yes.
0: <laughs> Correct. And so the process for me took about 10 months. I think in like an ideal scenario or like in a in a fastest case scenario, I think they said four months. When I was first, like I asked yeah. them, How that long would be
1: this- rare, though. I mean, that would be fast.
0: Oh, totally rare, totally rare. And I think they were like, they were maybe who knows, but I'm sure somebody has sold a business with. Oh, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah. So it it took ten months from start to finish, from okay onboarding with the PO group, um, to going through um the buyer screening process, which was very intense. Because remember, I'm sure. I'm looking at this from like, okay, like. I have all these people on my dance card. Who am I actually going to dance with? You know? Right.
1: Right. Um, and of course, I'm sure the broker, the book group helped with, because that's the other value from going with a broker is they helped with some of that initial screening so that ideally they only brought um, you the ones that were valid candidates. Yes.
0: Correct. And I did pull some stats for you so that we can talk about that, but yes, correct. So one of the things that's great about them is that they, they, you know, I don't even know how many Um, it's called the. The PO group calls it a buyer profile where somebody um, submits information about themselves and says, hey, I'm interested in the sperm. They review those buyer profiles and they um, sent me, I believe it was 28 buyer profiles to review. Wow. So I don't even know how many they screened at first. And they look at all different sorts of things. Like, is this person serious? Do they actually have a business? Um, I think there's maybe even a component where they look at their credit worthiness or or something like that but they're doing that like uh you know it's like when there's very 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 expensive homes on the market you have to make an appointment and get pre-screened um that's that's similar to their process they they pre-screen the buyers
1: so i and you you were talking about the stats i think you had shared this with me about 10 months 28 buyers were presented to you and then what was where were how did you whittle that down
0: yeah. So there is, of those 28, there was nine outright rejections, including two hedge funds. Um, I don't know why, but they seem to be very interested in counting and bookkeeping firms. I got a number of cold solicitations over the years. Hmm. Um, four withdrew interest, either for fit reasons or somebody had purchased a firm um, after inquiring about mine. Um and then eight moved to, so then I had Zoom interviews. I pulled eight of those people into the second round of interviews and then um, five bids. I think we, five moved to the final round and then we got three bids. So it was, it was quite lengthy. Yeah. And
1: then uh, those three bids, how how long did it take you then to select the finalist to get to the finalist?
0: Um, so the, the broker had some guidance around that, too. Um, it took a little while from the first person to the last person, because I was still conducting interviews. Um, so I, I can't remember the exact time frame. But the broker gave guidance, like, listen, we really try to get back to people. I don't know, I think what they whatever they said, maybe it was like 14 days. And sometimes that communication was like, hey, look, she's still right. conducting interviews, or she's still in this process. But yeah.
1: This is henry lopez briefly pausing this episode to invite you to schedule a free coaching consultation with me i welcome the opportunity to chat with you about your business plans and offer the guidance and accountability that we all need to achieve success as an experienced small business owner myself i understand the challenges you're experiencing and often it's about helping you ask the right questions to help you make progress towards achieving your goals Whether it's getting started with your first business or growing and maybe exiting your existing small business, I can help you get there. To find out more about my business coaching services and to schedule your free coaching consultation, please visit thehowabusiness.com. Take that next step today towards finally realizing your business ownership dreams. I look forward to speaking with you soon. Okay. Uh, I'm also curious because I'm I'm dealing with this now with a client of mine and it's always, you know, there's no, I don't think there's no rule on this. Did you uh, allow due diligence under LOI or under contract? I think you understand what I'm asking. It was under contract. Under contract. Okay. You just, you just felt in the guidance from your broker was that that was better to allow for due diligence once you had contract and then that was a contingency of the contract. Is that correct?
0: You know, I um, I think it varies. There was somebody that I was speaking to who wanted to go through due diligence only under an L O I, which okay. for okay. for people who don't know is a letter of intent. It's not a contract, right? Right,
1: and it's so, typically non-binding, so that's exactly. the issue. Yeah,
0: exactly. And um, so I think that there was there was both scenarios, but I was not going to go through the due diligence process unless we went to contract. Because okay. Okay. Um, you know, due diligence is that's a heavy lift. Oh, it's
1: exhausting. It's exhausting. exhausting. And and you're you're revealing everything. And and more than anything, it's time consuming. So you felt like I wanted to be at a more serious stage. We're under contract, then I'll allow for due diligence, due diligence. That's that was the decision you made. Yeah. Okay.
0: And that's that's the thing, right? You can't give blanket advice here like you should only no no yeah, diligent under contract. Like you might have a really attractive buyer that is the right fit for your company and that's a condition that they want and you're going to say okay listen this relationship is valuable to me I'm willing to go through due diligence only under an LOI cuz I do believe that this is the person I want to buy my firm yeah um so that's that's where you can lean into your broker your attorney um the people that are covered under the provisions of your confidentiality agreement to mm-hmm. give you guidance with that
1: yeah yeah excellent all right thanks for sharing those details I appreciate it I want to go back now to one of the things that I have found has happened to me, has happened to my business partner, other people that I coach, and that is this identity crisis that can happen when you are no longer the owner of good sense, right? You you did it for 15 years. It it becomes, at least for us as Americans, it's part of who we are, right? And now I'm no longer that. How did you go through that and did you have any of those challenges transitioning away from being the owner of that successful business?
0: Um it's funny well I'm only 10 months out so maybe we should That's do right it. so it's still maybe very fresh we yeah. we can do it we, could, we could check back in 2 years. Right. But, um no so in February of 2022 so this is a year before the the sale I launched a program called Bookkeepers Business Incubators and it was a be- it was not a beta but Essentially, what it is, is, it's a program where I teach other bookkeepers how to grow and scale a firm. So I don't teach bookkeeping. I actually teach the, the skill of running a bookkeeping company. Sure,
1: the business side so, of this. Yes. The
0: business side of it. Right. Correct. Which I totally jam out. I love talking shop. Um, so for a year, I had been running two businesses side by side. I had been running Good Sense, and, and I had been running Good uh, Bookkeepers Business Incubator. So I had or I I had something going on, right? Yeah. So the wheels yeah. were already turning. So it wasn't like I sold a good sense and then all of a sudden I had nothing to do with my days. Right. Um, I still had two child two of my children at the time are still home. Now I have two in college and only one at home. Um I was still momming. Uh so I did I didn't hit that um yet. And I I still run um the bookkeepers, the book BBI is what we call it, bookkeepers business incubator. Um, but, you know, good sense is my baby. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think really made us stand out as a brand was I started working with artists and creative people. So our branding was very unique at the time. And, you know, if you go back to 2008, 2007, but people, accounting brands were all what I call Chase Bank Blue. There was nothing, <laughs> there was nothing kitschy. There was nothing cute. There was nothing creative. Um, so Good Sense was my baby. And I really nurtured that as a brand. So when I went to the website, it was like, you know, Accountable is the name of the company that purchased my firm. Okay. okay. Uh, it was like Accountable. Um, I think it says like, you know, a division of Accountable or an Accountable-based company. I was like, oh, like I had a little feeling. It wasn't oh, but um, I love them. I love the people who purchase my firm. So yeah, no,
1: it's it's tough because they, they they bought your business, right? They they paid a good price for it. They deserve. They can do whatever they want with it now, right? But there's still that feeling. I I understand it completely. You know, I I developed a brand called I Top It, which was our frozen yogurt business that we sold several years ago and now it's like God I I create I remember picking the colors and this and that me myself and my yes. partner obviously so yeah like you said it's a baby that you create because I do believe and I'm sure you believe, agree as well when we create a business it is a a creation it's an artistic thing in part as well yes. and then letting go of that is tough sometimes
0: yeah yeah so that was the only I, I I do remember that moment like I pulled up the website for some reason and I saw their logo and I was like oh. Yeah you know, but um, (laughs) that was, that was the only pain.
1: Now, so you did not take, as you alluded to any time off, you went right into now focus on bookkeepers, business incubator. Is that correct? Or did you take any time off uh, after you sold? There
0: was not much time off because there was a 60 day transition period, which the end of April. Mm -hmm. Um, Then I had a family member who fell very ill. Thankfully they're okay. Uh, So that consumed sort of May and most of June, and then my son graduated high school, so we wow. went right into like all the you know high school activities. And um and and May I had launched the second cohort of BBI, so there wasn't a That's ton crazy. of time off, although yeah. although although the summer was pretty um, loosey goosey as it were. Um, yeah, and of
1: course you'll be going now into the first tax season in quite some time uh, in a different mode, I suspect.
0: Yeah, well, I think it was it was really fun because I finally, you know, my team, like I said, uh, like you said in the intro, was multi-state. But there are we did start um, here locally, so I was able to go out with a couple of my team members for lunch not long ago, and it was it was very funny because we sat down at the table and I said, "Oh my God, I've never sat down at the table with you guys and not been your boss." And, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, i was able to like not be a boss of them, and we're good friends anyway." But um, yeah, so and. Yeah, normally this is, I mean, for any bookkeepers or listening, uh, tax time doesn't start in January. Tax time for bookkeepers actually starts in November and December. That's one yeah. of the things I teach yeah. in my programs. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, looking back at the business, good, good sense, back in the early days of growing that business, mm-hmm. are the things that you look back at now or maybe that you reference now when you help others build their business that you would have done differently?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. There's so many things. <laughs>
1: Is there one thing that comes to mind that, that you see as a common thing that other people tend to repeat?
0: A common thing that they don't do or that they that do that
1: they don't do, exactly. One of those yeah. common things that you help people change or avoid because you you went through it and you would have done it differently when yeah. you were growing your firm.
0: Yeah. So um, as I mentioned earlier, I believe the customer experience is everything. And I have an expression that money is like medicine. So people need to feel really comfortable and really safe when you are working with them. Um, and a lot of times people go to their friends and family and colleagues for referrals to financial professionals, right? They don't yes. generally like open up a, you know, they don't generally go looking on Instagram, although it depends on the demographic. Um. So I think I would have hired help earlier to deliver a best better customer service experience earlier um and and it's twofold one because of you know being people centric and trying to really take great care of people but also from that cfo ceo standpoint you know the the longer you retain your clients the more valuable your firm becomes over time nice. and you only retain your clients if you deliver what you say you're going to deliver, but also cultivate those relationships. So cultivating relationships and really providing outstanding customer service is so important. Um, I can't tell you how many times I would get on the phone with a a potential new client and they would say, yeah, the bookkeeper does an okay job, but I, I can't ever get in touch with them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so frustrating, right? Like we all hate when we have to send an email to customer service. Like it's just yeah. um and, and we're busy. Your 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 clients are busy. So yeah. This
1: is a big topic. So I want to unpack it for a moment. First of all, the um this exactly as you described, that's what I, where I thought you were going, which is that the biggest frustration I hear from my clients with their CPAs and i've experienced as well is, is is you can't get through to anybody they're busy you know it's tax season or and it seems like it's always tax season right and, and so it that responsiveness <laughs> yeah, that responsiveness is poor but what i find is the challenge and i'm curious as to you make this point of hiring sooner what i find is that if you're successful starting out you start out typically like you did solopreneur mm-hmm. and then you grow but but usually the business gets ahead of you before you have that staffing, right? And it's almost like that's that's really what we learn sometimes about the financial justification of bringing on help is that we wait until the demand is there, but then that catches us on this customer service side. So the hiring sooner, do you look at it then and recommend that, yeah, I got to look at that as an investment that I have to make in my firm so I can stay ahead of this? Yeah, 100%.
0: When I... First started out my business, I was just a freelancer. I was just a solopreneur. And this is a mindset shift, right? This is going from a CEO entrepreneurial mindset to I am just working as a freelancer in my job. And that's where the power of leveraging debt can be really helpful. And I know that we think of debt as a four-letter word. We also have to realize that wildly successful entrepreneurs use it as a tool to grow. So one of the things that prohibits people from hiring is they don't have the capital to do it. If you are using, if you are in a service-based industry, the more hands you have on deck, essentially the more product you have to sell, right? So yep. um, that's that was I a mistake. Mean, I that's mean, your inventory.
1: That's your capacity, that's, right? That's, that's the that product your, you sell. 100%. Yeah,
0: one hundred percent. So if you have a hundred hands or a hundred T-shirts on a wall, that's how much you can sell. So. um, and for me, because again, because I was a single mom and in the beginning it was very hard. I was like kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul and, you know, all the different things. Um, I was like, oh, I don't like to get into debt. Um, but yeah, then I realized, well, wait a second, you know, people are out there. There's a reason why they're going through investor rounds and, um, you know, raising capital because they can't just snap their fingers and let's say they're building an app, hire the 10 best coders on the planet they have to have the capital in the bank to pay those coders so if you're in a place where you you know that you have to scale um consider um using capital using a loan and and consider it carefully right there's certainly especially now with the interest rates you have to be super careful you have to be really careful when you hire people um and that and, and it's it's a frustrating part of earning like having a service based business because this, these are the two plates you'll always be spinning, which is, do I hire people before I have the clients or do I get the clients and then hire the people? And what I would say is hiring always takes longer than it's going to um, think, think that you t- it will take. Yeah. You will always find something for a good person to do, whether it's populating a new software or cleaning up digital files. Um, you'll, you, you can create work for people. Uh, what you can't, do is recreate a bad experience for a client. Mm-hmm. You can earn their trust back, but that will take longer than keeping their trust. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Will said so much there that, that, that I'm glad you shared Justine. this point of the mind shift on debt being a good thing, not a bad thing is a huge one. So I'm so glad you shared your perspective on that. I find it to be one of the biggest things that, that often holds back people from growing their business is we come to it, understandably, with the understanding of debt from a personal finance perspective, where debt usually is a bad thing, consumer debt in particular. But understanding how to leverage debt in a business is critical to scaling, isn't it?
0: It's a lever, right? Leverage lever. And and to put this in perspective, if somebody is out there feeling skittish and saying, no way, I got to figure out another way my first loan was an $8,000 SBA loan. I mean, in the year 2023, you could sneeze and spend $8,000, right? <laughs> um, so so it doesn't have to be a hundred grand. It could be a credit line that you only use if to cover payroll, right? The gap between when you have to pay somebody and when you collect the funds from the clients right. um, so that you're actually not even having a loan, you're only tapping into that capital as a bridge between pay periods. So um, that's absolutely right.
1: Yep. Yeah, excellent. Thanks for sharing that. Okay. Let's talk about your new venture now. Thanks for sharing all of those insights and experiences and in, in selling the business, but let's talk about your exciting new venture, bookkeepers business incubator. What is it and who is it for? Tell us again.
0: Sure. So I started bookkeepers business incubator back in February of 2023 Um, And it's a year long program. It's a mentorship slash training program for bookkeepers who are looking to go. The tagline is freelancer, uh, freelancer to founder. Um, But we have all sorts of people in the program, people who have just started out to people who have small teams. And I help my students um, navigate all of the areas of running a bookkeeping business. And I focus on what I call the four S's. And that's sales, skills, systems, and service. We talked so much about service already. And then also uh, over the past year, so Bookkeepers Business Incubator is a year long program. Um, Over the past year, what I've done is started to break down bits of that program and um, hold workshops and boot camps for my people who are side hustlers, who are just stepping their toes into freelance, uh, the freelance world. And I found that has been very helpful a uh, year long is is a long time to commit, especially if right. you're just getting your toes wet. And then I have a, a few self study products
1: also. Fantastic. I want to I want to touch on one of these items because we talked about service and but sales. Sales is another one of those. I call it the four another four letter word, even though it's five letters. <laughs> uh, everybody seems to hate that because again they have a preconceived connotation often of what that entails. But in this business, I have to think a lot of it is growing through referrals. Is that fair?
0: Uh, yes, I think referrals is an excellent marketing tool.
1: Yeah, and so I I see referrals and asking for referrals and networking and all of that as a type of sales. Is that do you include that? I'm assuming in when you talk about sales,
0: I think referrals more falls under your marketing strategy. Okay, um, because even if you get a referral, you know you're you're probably sixty percent of the way there, but you still have to close the sale. You still have to tell people what the value and the benefits are of working with you. You still have to walk them through pricing and billing. That's it's not, fair. It's not, yeah, it's not an automatic.
1: Yeah. All right. So, but on sales, then part of it is often that most people I have found, I'm curious what you have found, or are afraid of that. They don't feel like I'm not a good salesperson.
0: Oh and the challenge is, yeah. of course,
1: that the business is out there and not here behind the desk, right? So what is it, do you see that? And, and how do you help people begin to overcome that fear of sales?
0: Well, I think the first thing, it comes down to confidence and self-value, right? And moms in particular can really stru- struggle with that, right? Is um is how can I, it's a self-esteem. It can come down to self-esteem, right? Exactly. Like I do Agreed. this yeah. thing, I do it really well and and I'm here to help you. And of course, sales has a, we don't feel good about it because we have this cultural trope of the used car salesman. Right. And I think that um, if you approach it again from a place of ethics, um, where you're just here to help somebody, you're not here to sell somebody something, That—that that is an internal shift that makes that conversation so much easier. When I was running Good Sense, I would get on the phone with clients and I would say to them, listen, I will never sell you a service that you can't use. And I got on a number of conversations where I wasn't a fit for somebody. And I would tell them that, like, I didn't do manufacturing or construction bookkeeping. I am not the person for you. I'm not going to take you on as a client. So if you can approach it from that mindset where um, you're not selling something to somebody that they don't need what you're doing is inviting them into a conversation to select you to solve the problem that they have.
1: Yeah. Well said. Well said. I I agree with that. I think it's, it's not manipulative selling it's communicating your value and looking for fit.
0: And so that's right.
1: Thanks for sharing that. All right. Book recommendation. You mentioned the book that you were going to recommend, which is fantastic built to sell. Uh, As I had mentioned to you before we started recording, I've had the privilege of having John Warlow on as a guest he was so on episode fun. yeah it was a great conversation with him obviously such a bright and insightful guy and such a great guest because he's he's very sharing uh that's episode 349 i'll have a link to that in the show notes page for this episode as well if you want to listen to that conversation i had with john warlow but why this book why do you recommend this book you've touched on a little bit of it but tell me a little bit more about why you recommend this book
0: i think i should come back and we could do a whole episode just yeah
1: somewhere. i bet <laughs> Of course, you mentioned it at the outset, it was, it was kind of what you're learning as the basis of your learning when you decided I might sell my business, right?
0: Yeah. So I, first of all, I love reading. Uh, One of my daily habits every day is I read 20 minutes a day every morning. So, um, but I know that reading is not everybody's jam. And this book is very interesting to me because like I said, it's a fictional tale that delivers business wisdom. And if you're not somebody who likes to read nonfiction, which I am, um, this will be very helpful to you because it's short, it's sweet, it's to the point, and it delivers some great lessons on, and we didn't actually talk about that, what to do to prepare your business for sale. Um, And it was just really insightful. And I really enjoyed it. And it was like a one-day read. It was super easy.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's in story format. And that's that's very consumable, very accessible. Uh, Speaking of, though, on your website, tell us your website.
0: It's JustineLackey.com. So it's J-U-S-T-I-N-E-L-A-C-K-E-Y.com.
1: And uh, I was doing as I was doing the research, of course, you had reached out earlier uh, a month or two ago telling me about the sale of the business and we changed the website link. And of course, I noticed that on your website, you've got lots of book recommendations because like myself and you said, you're a big reader. And so that's one of the things I love about your website is that you have your book recommendations there, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm constantly talking about books.
1: All right. Let's wrap it up. Uh, what's one thing that you think you would like us to take away from the conversation we had about selling a business?
0: I want every, you know, I want every entrepreneur to understand that they are a steward of their fortune and you don't just have a job, you have a business and you have a potential asset. So if you thought about that asset, let's say it's worth $250,000. If you think about leaving $250,000 on the table or not having $250,000 to leave to your children or your family or your favorite charity, you would never do that. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't realize that they have an asset. And I I would like us to really start to think about that.
1: Well said, I love that. And you had mentioned that you had used that word earlier in the conversation. And and so I I love that idea and that mindset of looking at this as an an asset that I need to maintain, that I need to develop, that I need to invest in so that it retains that value regardless of what I might do with that value. So thanks for sharing that approach.
0: Yeah, my pleasure.
1: Tell me again where you want us to go online to learn more about what you're doing now with uh, Bookkeeper's Business Incubator.
0: Sure, it's justinelackey.com. You can also find me on Instagram at justinelackey.
1: Excellent, and we'll have a link to that on the show notes page to this episode at thehowofbusiness.com. Justine, another great conversation. I'm glad you were willing and able to come back and converse with me about the sale. Thanks for sharing and for being on the show with me today.
0: Henry, thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure. I love talking shop and entrepreneurship. I love spending time with you. I love your show. So thank you. Um, Such a privilege.
1: I appreciate that. This is Henry Lopez. And thanks for joining me on this episode of The How Howa Business. My guest today again was Justine Lackey. I release new episodes every Monday morning. And you can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts, including at The How Howa Business YouTube channel and at the website, thehowabusiness.com. Thanks again for listening.